on to the Hillier Beacon Audio Companion, uh, Edition Tax Increment Financing, colon, The Reckoning. I am Jordan Smith. I'm joined by a uh, friend and compatriot, Tim Hoffman. Hello, this is Tim. This is uh, Audio Companion number 40. Oh, wow. You've been keeping track. Yeah. I stopped. I can, No, I got to keep track. I got to know how many reps I got on this kind of thing. File management coming to the fore. Excellent. Uh, we are joined by uh, by far the highest credentialed and most professional people we've ever hosted in the studio, uh, Dr. Mark Partridge, uh, Swank Chair uh, at uh, what is what is the location of the Swank Chairmanship? Is it roving? Do you kind of roll roll through the I, academia? Right, right. I roll through academia in a very nice chair. Uh, no, it's named after uh, William Swank, who was the executive director of Farm Bureau for about thirty years. And I'm housed in the College of Agriculture and Agriculture, Environment, Development, Economics. It's a mouthful, but uh, that's where I that's where the swank chair is. Perfect. Excellent. And also uh, his comrade here on uh, these matters of reporting on tax increments and the financing thereof, uh, <laughs> Mr. Nick Messenger. Nick, uh, have your credentials upgraded or where are you on the academic ladder these days? Yeah, I'm, I'm real close to getting the credentials. So okay. I'm in my, uh, my fifth year of the PhD program, a PhD candidate at Ohio State, uh, studying with Mark. Uh, and then in my, my side job, I'm a senior researcher with the Ohio River Valley Institute, which is a, a research organization that focuses on uh, some of these regional issues we're talking about. So, um, But uh, I've been at Ohio State for, for five years and getting close. Right. There is a definite progression and it's it's kind of a, a, a march to say to say the least. But how would you describe that process right now? I mean, you're getting close to the end of things. You feel like you're 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 ready to to chart your course after that kind of an education. Yeah, it's been a, it's been a really great experience and working with Mark and, and studying issues like tax increment financing have uh, really kind of spurred me into to a career in regional science, regional economics. Very cool. Well, thank you both for coming out today. I really appreciate it. Tax increment financing has been a a big thing for for me to try to understand how a lot of these complex financial instruments are made to function and serve in this economy that we have and and as the further you get into it, you realize that there are no shortcuts. There are no workarounds. Everything has a cost. Everything has uh, an associated uh, risk and, and in a lot of cases, not very much reward. Um, but it is sold a certain way. It is portrayed a certain way. And it uh, creates a certain aura around it, which has migrated across the country starting decades ago in California and different places where Tax increment financing became illegal at one point uh, and shifted the whole uh, scale of development across that state. But I'm kind of rambling with just the the basic blanks of knowledge I've been able to fill in. But I thought maybe an interesting way to start talking about this issue would be to kind of describe what regional sciences encompasses and maybe what that tells us about what we're going to try to do here today. So, Mark, maybe you would be the best person to talk about that a little bit sure. to start us off. Sure, Jordan. Uh, uh, regional science is an interdisciplinary uh, uh, field that includes economists, sociologists, geographers, planners, uh, more economists than, than uh, either group. But uh, uh, what it examines is, is why particular regions, which could be defined as small as Hilliard, a suburb, or as large as the state of Ohio or the northeastern U.S. or, or something like that, why are, they, why are they different than what you see elsewhere? So it could be like differences in economic growth. It could be differences in education outcomes. It could be differences in health, health outcomes. But why do we see different outcomes across uh, geography? Right. So the, 
the very last word you mentioned, the geography determines the scale of the lens that you're focusing on for the particular study. And then the disciplines of economics, agriculture, you're kind of bringing in a range of, like you say, interdisciplinary examinations that function on a scale that's more local based. So by doing that, by harnessing that kind of study and those kind of uh, uh, methodologies behind it, what does that then tell you about these regions? What are you hoping to glean from putting it under that microscope? Well, uh, you know, we look at a variety of things. So we're going to talk about uh, the effect of, uh, of uh, tax abatements and their effect on the local economy, their effect on local property values. Are they, are they creating long-run benefits that they're portrayed as, as creating? They could be looking at issues of why Ohio lags in employment growth and continues to lag in employment growth, why, say, Columbus is doing better than Cleveland, to uh, various uh, very important r rural issues as well. Right, right. Nick, when you've looked at this and you're coming to it and you're kind of developing your own focus and analysis on these things, what are some of the issues that stand out first and foremost when you're looking at any particular region or locality? What are some of the signal points that you look for? Yeah, I think uh, one of the things, uh, my background before I came back to, to regional economics was uh, as a high school teacher across three different states uh, and, and Texas, Michigan, and Ohio. And so thinking about the way that we, uh, different regions, have different educational outcomes was one of really my motivations in coming back uh, to, to study regional science and, and regional economics and, and thinking about uh, how that can next to this particular issue of tax abatements, um, you know, here in Ohio and, and in most of the U.S., property taxes play a, a very large role uh, in generating the revenue for schools. And, uh, you know, throughout history in the United States, where you've gone to school is where you live, and where you live is where you pay property taxes. And, and uh, so those things are really intricately linked. So, so thinking about educational outcomes across regions is really uh, something that I'm interested in. Another aspect of it that I think is increased in importance uh, and has been in the media a lot is the environmental aspect across regions and thinking about uh, the fact that a lot of uh, things like pollution don't have those regional administrative boundaries, right? Uh, thinking here in Ohio recently about the train derailment in, in East Palestine, uh, you know, the pollution released from there doesn't stop at the Ohio border or the county border or the city border. Uh, and so I think that's become an, an element of regional science and, and uh, an intersection with environmental science and in the past couple of decades, thinking about climate change and thinking about how regions are going to experience this uh, clean energy transition that's going on. So all of it connected, uh, like Mark said, interdisciplinary. Right. And then how government over top of all that uh, can affect and, and interpose itself and change the course of some of these outcomes pretty directly. Um, when I was looking into regional sciences and trying to get a handle, at least initially, so I didn't sound like a complete fool coming into the conversation. I looked up uh, the founder of regional sciences, who was a, a person by the name of Walter Isard, and he was an economist, and basically it breaks down to he studied how regions evolve, hmm. and that is over time and through all these mechanisms we've described. And it's interesting that as I was reading through some of his biography here is he evolved into a peace scholar, a peace academic in a lot of ways. He traveled internationally. He contributed to how uh, negotiations are conducted and all these things. And I think regional sciences kind of boiled down in my mind to the study of stability, the study of peaceful uh, growth and evolution of processes so that 
there aren't these jarring changes that can then affect other entities within this ecosystem of this locality. So I thought that was an interesting evolution for a founder of something that was that uh, focused locally to then realize that that local focus could provide a larger understanding of peace processes and negotiations. I thought that was really interesting to think about. When you were going through school and being educated in these disciplines, how much of your time was spent on that kind of high-level thinking? How much was spent on focusing on economic study? What were some of the major theories going through the education leading up to this kind of career? Well, uh, basically, uh, a lot, like a lot of us come to regional science uh, as refugees from some other area. So I was trained as an international economist and a labor economist. And a lot of those skills are very helpful. And what I was uh, concerned with is I, I just didn't see this having an impact. You know, I was writing these esoteric articles on things that nobody read. And mm -hmm. then uh, regional science was, I mean, wow, you know, their conferences are really interesting. They're looking at real world issues. And, mm -hmm. and as you mentioned, Walter Dyser, you know, we're trying to change things so that we get better outcomes for people. Right. Right. And, and that's that really has been a through line in, in the economics profession. You know, folks like Mark uh, kind of uh, trailblazing and, and joining this field of, of regional science and regional economics uh, are the reason that folks like me came to grad school. You know, I would have never probably pursued grad school if it was uh, kind of a monolithic, you know, like, oh, I'm going to go write theory papers that, you know, nobody's ever going to read. But uh, seeing the kind of work Mark's done over the course of his career is something for a whole new generation of economists like me to look at. And and say, you know, I want to do that. I want to contribute to that, to that work that's going on. Right. And I, as somebody who's tried to generate a lot of interest locally through this Hilliard Beacon project, and we've conducted hours and hours of interviews with candidates and uh, people that are going to be involved in an ongoing way with the administration and growth of this city, I feel like those kind of observations, those kind of studies, that kind of knowledge can be more readily employed by people actually looking to create uh, meaningful change. Because as you said, when I'm writing an esoteric paper about this, that, or the other, it's got a high level, a degree of academia associated with that. It's not as applicable or it's not as easily understood by somebody reading it as I could use this. I could put this in my situation. You know, using more concrete examples in that regional framework seems to be uh, a, a better fit for what I hope to see uh, happen in the future here locally. Um, maybe we could talk a little bit about the scope uh, of the study that you conducted for uh, the Franklin County Auditor, Michael Stinziano, uh, as he was looking at tax increment uh, review and how those uh, tax incentive review. I keep crossing those up every time we talk about this. I try to combine TIRC with TIF, and those are the same, but you know, a little bit more. Uh, a lot more, of acronyms flying yeah, around. Yeah. But why don't you talk about the scope of your work here for that process, if you oh, don't mind? Okay, so uh, mainly because the data is better, most of the work we did was on uh, community redevelopment areas, which is, uh, they work similar to a tax increment financing, but they're more aimed at residential areas, uh, where tax increment financing is more aimed at businesses, though they could, there could be an overlap there. And so the uh, auditor put out a call for proposals and looked at several proposals, and uh, he was most impressed with ours, and what, it, uh, and this has led to three different studies, uh, annual studies, and, and what, we're, what we charge about roughly is, is what are the long-run effects of these uh, community redevelopment areas, these tax increment finance districts on 
their, their particular neighborhood? Are they, or at least, are they getting their, their effects in their local neighborhood? And then broadly, the spillovers onto the broader uh, city, because they're mostly in Columbus, but they're also, like you said, in Hilliard, and then broader spillovers across Franklin County, that, that these things are, you know, Columbus housing market's so large, these are, they're going to be spillovers, and it affects uh, our housing prices out here in the suburbs. Mm-hmm. Talk a little bit about um, the county services aspect, because that was point one in your study that was, and I've described it as a Swiss cheese effect on county services at the taxation level. And and what happens is with TIF, I believe, is that by creating these individuated pockets of, well, this one's 30 years, this one's 20 years, this one's 15 years, trying to create these temporal fixes for shortfalls in certain budgets or, or, or spending, uh, creates the long-term effect, as you folks are studying, of an impact on county services. Describe a little bit of that, if you don't mind. Yeah, I, I think one thing that's kind of helpful here is, is um, kind of, I'll, I'll walk through, hopefully, um, for, for this will come through over a podcast format, the audio of how a TIF works and how this thing gets set up. Sure. Because um, I think that's really important to understand to then think about those spillovers and effects on other things that, that Mark mentioned and, and the services that you mentioned. Um, so, you know, the state of Ohio starts out there and our state legislators have created uh, different programs at the state level and have given the authority to local you know, municipalities, local cities, towns, villages to enact different types of tax incentives. And the goal there is that they're trying to recruit businesses and recruit people. Uh, one of the kind of universal truths of, of economic development and growth is that you, if your population is growing, it's a good sign, right? That means mm-hmm. there's jobs. That means there's stuff to do in the community that people like. There's entertainment, there's arts, there's culture, and it's a, a good place to live. And, and uh, so there will be kids to there fill will up be the kids schools. to fill there up the schools. Be- yep, exactly. So growth starts with people and and, uh, and so these policies are really aimed at that, of, of economic growth, um, of businesses to create jobs, to bring people, is, is the traditional thinking uh, around why we do this in the first place. And so what has really happened over the last several decades, and, and we trace in the report that in Franklin County, this really starts big time right around the turn of the millennia, right around 2000, um, where we start seeing just a really rapid use of these things. And it's not just Hilliard, it's not just Columbus, it's it's really throughout the whole county. Um, so, so there's different programs. So we're going to kind of use the term tax abatements to refer to it all unless we sure. mention a specific uh format of one. But the the core principle is really the same. There are different mechanisms that reduce property taxes. So a business wants to come in and open its doors, and it might not otherwise come to the town. And so the town says, well, you know, we know you really might go somewhere else, but we can give you this tax incentive. We can reduce your property taxes, and you can come here. And kind of the implicit hope of that that handshake, right, is we'll reduce your property taxes, you'll come generate jobs, you might generate uh, more businesses coming because you have payrolls and supply chains and all that good stuff. And so, you know, this is an investment. Us reducing your property taxes is an investment in growing. And the trade-off to that that we talk a lot about in the report is that property tax reduction 
uh, is revenue that would otherwise go to a lot of public services. The big one is schools, as I mentioned kind of in our, our intro. Um, but, you know, the Senior Citizen Center here in Franklin County is, is a property tax piece. Uh, you think about parks and zoos and you think about uh, libraries and different pieces. Anytime voters go to the polls, right, and, and they're usually a property tax levy is, you know, typically on the ballot and they have to decide whether they want to pay a little bit more in property taxes to, to help out one of those public services. And so whenever you enact some sort of tax incentive agreement, whether that's uh, a tax increment finance or, or a community reinvestment area, you're implicitly taking away some revenue from the services that that would flow to. Uh, and you're hoping that on the back end, those jobs that you create and that growth you create will make up that lost money, right? Yeah. Unfortunately, you're also, in a lot of ways, creating a triggering mechanism for those entities like developmental disabilities and adults with developmental disabilities to ask for more money. And, and that creates that potential for that. Is every TIF eventually just a tax hike on residential property owners or taxpayers of any stripe in any municipality, really? So we'll get into that a little bit as we go on. Uh, thank you for that. That was a really nice and concise explanation of tax increment financing. How do you feel about that, Tim, as a, a complete uh, uh, apostate from the tax increment financing discussion? <laughs> do you feel that was a sufficient explanation? Do you have more clarifying questions, maybe? Because I'm I'm right there with them, but I think maybe it would be good for you to say, give me a little more detail. Uh, no, I think that was pretty good. Uh, you know, just what came to mind while it was going on is it seems like this is a method whereby uh, local municipal governments are co cooperating and sort of conferring benefits and working together uh, with local developers and local businesses. But just to clarify, just to, uh, it's not that the municipalities, they're, they're tending to compete with one another. It tends to set off mm -hmm. a race to the bottom. Sure. But it is in within the municipality, they're trying to cooperate with the local developer. Okay. And what you're kind of hinting at is that it's an agency generator. It allows these local governments to feel like we have agency to create that economic development that is in our mandate as a city. We have the ability to create economic action. Uh, this is a mechanism that these developers seem to like. And boy, that's a lot of money. Uh, let's get going. But at the same time, it's that handshake that then creates all these externalities and some of these spillover effects uh, that you describe, one of which, the primary of which is, do these tax increment financing agreements create an incentive to compete that is essentially, I mean, to be crass about it, a throat-slitting competition between local governments uh, in a race to the bottom? I think nationally, one of the strongest examples of this in the last several years is the Amazon HQ2 project, which was essentially data harvesting on all of our largest cities <laughs> yeah. uh, by our country's largest corporation and exactly how willing they were to bend over backwards uh, uh, to create favorable conditions. To bring in jobs, yes. A very obvious uh, fishing expedition from, yeah. from Amazon. Uh, uh, good thoughts. That's not where I was headed with it. That's mm. not what I was thinking. It just seems like it, uh, this is a – so we're after that growth, that community growth, population growth, more jobs, more – it seems like – uh, we're trying to seek a synergy between our local government organizations and the people who, you know, can start companies and bring jobs. So we're trying to work together to create uh, a more vibrant uh, local economy that will then have advantages over competing local economies. So what are developing? Bring more, uh, and you know, as a as a as a 
way of trying to juice the growth. So that's what developers are selling to the city council, essentially. Yes, they're saying, you allow us this tax increment financing agreement. We will create this destination that will then, mm-hmm. over time, and when the abatement ends, be made whole, and everyone gets made whole at the end. That is the stated well, intention. And I think what the overarching question that, that Mark uh, brought up at the onset is when the auditor put out the, the call for, for studying this and, and when we submitted a proposal – it really boils down. We ask these really detailed questions and we can get into how we approach the study. But the big question is, is that true? Right. Yeah. Does it pay off at the end of that rainbow? Is there a pot of gold there? Right. And I, and I think you hit it because theoretically, these sound pretty benign. And what, what uh, so theoretically, they, you know, they're basically a tax increment finance is where the business doesn't have to pay the property tax, but their property tax goes into a fund to build local infrastructure. So you could see that, oh, this is going to develop growth, and, and, and uh, it's very positive. What, what the, the problem with the theory is, when you get out of the real world, is, is now you're competing with one another. So now we get examples where, because of the municipalities have local income taxes, local municipalities are trying to collect property taxes, is where the schools are. They're trying to like give incentives, say, Walmart, when you move across the street from uh, uh, Columbus to Hilliard, and we'll give you a big tax break. And so we didn't create any jobs. We just moved the jobs. We just redirected the jobs. And mostly what these are doing is just moving things around Franklin County, but at the expense of we don't get any new growth, but we we get less tax revenue. Right, right. Because everything is frozen at the the established value at the moment that tax increment financing agreement is signed and instituted. That is the only amount that goes into the traditional taxing – vehicles, that distribution. Everything beyond that for the term of the agreement, up to 30 years in some cases, and then maybe an extension after that. We'll talk about Easton maybe when we get into some of these use cases, uh, abuse cases. Um, but that is that is what it is, is at issue, primarily. That understanding that you freeze it where it was a fallow farm field, and you then throw into a general fund potentially for infrastructure improvements what is a huge data center warehouse complex generating millions of dollars in finances and everything else. And then in a lot of cases, if it's not used explicitly for the infrastructure developments that it was slotted for, it gets thrown into the general fund, and then who knows what happens. Right. And then the other thing is is the, quite often the firm would have located there anyway. So it's you know even without the incentive, they're, they were just extracting – money from uh, desperate politicians. Right. They were looking for what was made to be understood as the cost of doing business. A lot of people that come in and have sat down and talked to us have said, boy, I wish these things never existed. I wish they didn't exist, but they do. And that's what everybody uses. And that's the almost like the currency, the common currency that gets passed around in these kind of agreements. Well, if you don't want to do it, we'll go over here. Okay. I mean, that ultimately there has to be that moment of checking this as a strategy. So what Hilliard did in in a way was they amended the charter. They made it uh, a prohibited use case where you can't, you couldn't use it for residential building. Uh, You could use it for commercial building if you got the school to sign off and you got the township to sign off. So it's going through these evolutions of hybridizing how it's approved, mm-hmm. but really it's just adding another small room of agreement to the, again, to be crass, the throat slitting. Because 
whether or not the township trustees say yes to it, they're still taking that money away from the county services, correct? Correct. There's, right. a, there's a definite problem. The people making a decision are not the people who are being most affected. I'll also add that uh, you know a lot of the reforms of these different types of tax abatements, and the big one at the state level was in 1994, but a lot of local communities have tried different ways to kind of limit or Keep regulate. some of this, but not yeah, giving let's, away all let's, of this. Yeah. yeah, let's rein it in a little bit. And one of the most common things you see across different uh, communities around the state is, well, you know, we've, we've regulated it now because we've added this layer of school board approval. So the schools are the big one. People don't like taking money away from the schools. So, you know, we'll make sure this business has to come get the school board's approval. Well, what happened is the school boards and the businesses started having side agreements that would materialize that Mm -hmm. are really difficult from a researcher's perspective to get a hold of because they're Mm -hmm. not necessarily out in the public. You know, the school board doesn't between lawyers. Yeah, it doesn't always advertise the agreement. It's usually in the minutes of a school board meeting somewhere back, you know, 10 years ago when the agreement was made. But essentially these agreements, it's hard to evaluate uh, whether those agreements fully compensate the school district because they're they're one-off agreements between individual you know the folks the companies receiving the the tax benefit and the school district right and, and these are boots on the ground people getting deals done exactly we gotta go you know we need it's time to build the school it's time to fund the things and, and they need to do their you know they need to develop this area that they purchased all right uh, uh, come on let's go let's get a deal made and right. And then you see the school board approve the, ta- the, the tax increment financing agreement or the CRA. And right. so, so they made a deal beforehand. And right. So, and so that's hard for you guys. That messes up your data. It, it's hard to track. It's hard to track the numbers bastards. and actually come up with, you know, hey, did if company A paid school district A a, a mystery number of dollars uh, in, a, in a side agreement to the TIF, um, that's not illegal or anything. It's not necessarily shady. It does happen at a school board meeting to the public. It's usually, you know, the school board announces they're going to talk about it. So it's not necessarily, it's not a shady thing, but it's hard to evaluate at the end of 30 years, like you said, was that payment that the company made enough to actually offset what tax revenue was lost by the agreement? Though and- we do look at uh, educational expenditures and look at what do these TIF uh, agreements do these uh, uh, CRA agreements are they are they associated with reduced school expenditures and it, we definitely find less school expenditures in places with more of these agreements hmm. is uh, is there a way that you could kind of uh, go up a level or two and find some sort of a meta analysis that would encompass those kinds of interactions I have an interesting idea and I think they hint at it a little bit in some of this work obviously it's property taxes. The rate at which property taxes grow around TIF agreements, you can tell what's happening, the values and all that. Why, Mark, if you don't mind, or Nick, if you wanted to sure. talk a little bit about that element, because that's a reflection of um, uh, how Franklin County's property taxes have doubled the state average, if no, I think... No, not, a, not quite that. Okay. It's uh, Since we began this uh, craze of... Uh, tax uh, uh, abatements. And I should say that uh, we're now, we just saw that we're now number one in the state by far. Uh, Cincinnati, uh, the only nearby place that's uh, even close would be Union County, Marysville. Uh, Northeast Ohio doesn't play this game uh, for the most part. Very, very limited use. Uh, So what we found was is that the rate of property tax increase in Franklin County 
among our municipalities and, and county governments is twice the state average. And so in other words, our property taxes have been rising at more than the state average, even though we have very robust real estate market. You know, if this was Youngstown, you could see that housing prices are depressed. Mm -hmm. They have to raise property taxes. But you wouldn't expect that in a very robust uh, real estate market like Columbus, but yet we're paying higher property taxes. You look at income taxes, local income taxes. Uh, our local income taxes here in Franklin County as a share of income uh, is about double what, what you see collected in the state average. Wow. So these basically these we've seen a massive shift towards other kinds of taxation because uh, we're collecting less uh, uh, property tax revenue. So basically, it's a shift. Somebody else is paying the tax. And it produces that masking effect where people don't see or sense the shortfalls because they are distributing the pain across uh, the other taxpayers, well, essentially. There's certainly probably some school treasurers out there who, who sure. notice the shortfalls. Oh, <laughs> but, well, yeah. Yeah, that's, that's an interesting but, point. Uh, and you did talk about the, the school piece a little bit, and, and maybe we can talk about um, what happens when you recruit a business from inside the county and you move it from a full-rate taxpayer into a TIF district. Because that just happened here uh, with a major employer in this city, uh, Advanced Drainage Systems, longtime Hilliard company. Uh, TruePoint uh, was announced as a major development, landed a, a massive TIF agreement, and the first anchor tenant announced was a major employer in the city from within our own county. Uh, talk a little bit about what that looks like from an overall financial perspective and, and what that's and what that tends to indicate when you move businesses within a county? Well, if you, especially if you move them within a city, these become ridiculous. We're offering a tax cut for something that was already there. So, I mean, we literally didn't create any new jobs. We just cut tax revenue. Now, if you're talking about stealing within, you know, these, this, this competition within the county, between the suburbs and the city of Columbus, uh, there, again, you hit the same kind of story, is that you have a, usually a full property taxpayer in one part of this uh, county, let's say the city of Columbus, moving to Hilliard where they're no longer paying taxes, yet we didn't create any jobs for the local community. We just moved where they were. And so that, that's why we have this tax shifting going on. These things consistently force, force less revenue, and that means if we're going to have those services, we have to raise them elsewhere, like through this local income tax or uh, increase property taxes for the remaining taxpayers. So when a lot of these council folks come in and they say, we need to create and generate a lot of commercial development to offset these rising tax costs for our residents. But then they use the TIF mechanism to engage that commercial development. You're essentially pouring water into a colander. Am I understanding that correctly? Yeah, that, that'd be a great way. Yeah, right. The water, like, the water's running in one end of the bathtub and going out the drain at the other end. It's, you're, not, you're not really creating anything especially since these tax competitions locally are just moving things within the county. For the most part, they're not bringing in anything outside. And so 
we lose the property tax revenue that we were collecting. We didn't create anything economically in the end. And, so and like a create a, a big building with a vacancy. <laughs> well, and we actually yeah. – this this idea of the competition, right, it becomes a real big mindset, especially among the folks who, who are trying to create jobs and they're elected to, you know, make these decisions and they're trying to come up with ways to grow their, their, their community. But we, in our report, we actually test. You know, we mentioned earlier geography is a big part of regional science. So one of the ways we do that is we actually look at – a big, we put a circle on a map and we say, let's look at all the TIFFs within the circle around center, you know, put a point in the center of Hilliard, draw a circle around it. Put a point in the middle of Upper Arlington, draw a circle around it. New Albany, draw a circle around it. Columbus, draw a little bit bigger circle around it. But mm. what you start doing is you start actually saying, well, over time, if Hilliard starts using more tax increment financing agreements and starts trying to have, you know, all these companies come, what happens in the subsequent years in Hilliard's neighboring? Villages And what we find in towns and cities is what we find in the county is it increases. And so there's some evidence in the report and in our findings that uh, exactly what you mentioned, folks who are making decisions, city council folks and you know, township folks are noticing what their neighbors are doing and they're playing a game of keeping up with the Joneses. And so they're saying, well, wait a minute, Hilliard's getting this company that just they stole from Columbus. So now let me offer some tax incentives to steal from Hilliard. Yeah, right? You broke down right. that ratio. What was it uh, for every tax incentive offered in a neighboring municipality? There was a potential of two. Uh, I thought it was 0. 0.7. I think, 0. 0.7. Yeah. Okay. yeah. So it's, in other uh, words, it creates another one for this competition. And then the other thing I did mention, and I should, is that you create these uh, – these uh, t uh, abatements, let's say in residential neighborhoods, that increases the demand in the area that's no longer paying property taxes for the abated period, yet that reduces demand outside of the abated areas. So another way that people are paying for that is a little bit lower housing prices. I mean, they, their house is worth a little bit less mm -hmm. if they're not in one of these because of the existence of them. Mm -hmm. Right. But that's because the housing values within that 250-meter bubble increase based on that uh, expectation or actual evidence of that investment, that uh, infrastructure spending and all those things where you're getting those appraisals up I, in that in that smaller window. And that's something I think anybody who has experienced trying to buy a home and has walked around with a realtor probably can see how that happens because a realtor walks around and says, this is an up-and-coming area. And you right. look around and you see, well, this company just opens its doors. There's a little coffee shop. There's a brewery or there's a whatever, right? And so you think, oh, well, this is the area I want to be. And so you are now kind of thinking, well, I'll bid a little bit more to try to get the house in this zone. Right. And that is going to be, you know, relative to I'm not going to bid as much for a house that's further away from this up and coming area. And right. A place that doesn't have a tiff up downtown. Right, right, right. right. And so, uh, like I think you used the word earlier, it juices it a little bit. We mm -hmm. know that people like to live near entertainment districts and restaurants mm -hmm. and walkable places. And that stuff's always going to have some advantage in the housing market. But what the tax incentives really do is they add this further price effect. They, they kind of, uh, a little bit of gasoline on that fire, right? Mm. And so what you end up with is these really intense competitions for, for homes in that area that get this increase. Uh, other homes outside of the tax zone, uh, relative to those in the tax zone, experience this kind of, of uh, decline, uh, potentially. And then to your other point, that if I get, if my home experiences that value decline relative to those that are in the tax zone, and now my county services have a budget shortfall, now I might get asked on the next ballot to raise my own taxes. So not only did my property tax or my property value decline, my property taxes might 
go up in the future to yeah, make yeah. up that shortfall. So it's kind of the double whammy potentially for parts of the county that don't fall in these areas. Absolutely. I think it's it's a very winners and losers uh, effect and very apparent. Obviously, the, the physical investment, number one, but the back end effects in taxes, appraisals, the lag in appraisal changes and all these things. Uh, and not necessarily being a fine science in and of itself uh, may not match up with what the reality of what it looks like on the ground. When down the street, you have this level of intensity of development and uh, over here, you got a neighborhood that was built in the fifties, et cetera, et cetera. So um, in the intervening time, you say you have a new uh, study coming out uh, focused on uh, Stenziano's new uh, review uh, council that's coming through soon when do you think that'll be coming out uh i think any later this month is yeah. when the next okay. uh auditor uh tax incentive review report comes out uh, and our report is a kind of a uh add-on to their report um so it should be out later this month yeah it's it was listed in the materials underlying study uh in, in focused uh, a lot of a lot of things on that paper as i look back on it they're always going to try to say this is not endorsed by this state agency or what have you, because they have to, but at the same time, just coming back to you year after year for recurring analysis is really what is going to provide better insight to this thing. Because in this next paper upcoming or in this next study upcoming, you've shifted the focus a little bit. Do you mind giving us a little bit of that preview as to what the, the sure, focus will be? Sure. Yeah. yeah I, mean, uh, I don't want to speak for the auditor, but the, the auditor is charged with seeing that Franklin County taxpayers are getting a good deal and since these are very pervasively used, I mean, that's what he's, well, are we getting a good deal from these? So that, 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 that's his motivation. In terms of the most recent study, uh, we needed a little more time because it takes time for the, they usually last about 15 years, these abatement areas. Mm -hmm. And so we needed enough time to pass that we could start seeing what happens when the 15 years expires. So we start looking at houses in these CRAs as they, uh, what happens to their home values as they expire. And what we found was, is a rather interesting result, I thought, is that uh, we tend to find on the average home in a Franklin County abatement area tends to gain about $70,000 in value. Uh, and that's, and it's generally based on that, that is, the buyer is paying the seller for the lower property tax. So basically, mm -hmm. the original seller is the one who's getting the good deal. The new buyer is just paying a higher price, so that it, that's offset by lower property taxes. Mm -hmm. Okay, so we find about $70,000 uh, gain, and we find that neighboring houses also gain to some extent. But then what surprised us uh, to, to the degree, not necessarily the finding, but the degree, was that when these things are removed, that we find an average effect in the first five years of about a $70,000 decline in housing prices. You know, almost exactly offsetting that uh, the gain, the temporary gain from was just the property tax thing, and the long-term effect is nothing. And, and basically where, where it is is that, that, sure, there might be more renovations in this area, but renovations also depreciate over time. Run their course. Yeah. Right? And, you know, you know, even a good renovation will only add so much to your home value. Uh, and so over time, that the, the renovation effect is starting to decline, and uh, uh, basically that neighborhood didn't generate enough amenities to offset the loss in uh, the property tax. Right. The, so the breakaway. You can, you can tiff, but not sufficiently. You can under tiff. Well, oh, I mean, no. <laughs> that's, that's the developer argument. We'll take. I mean, and that's the Easton case. 
we'll take another 30 years off if you don't mind. And it turns out they didn't. What? <laughs> I mean, at some level, you just have to kind of say, okay, you've made this bed at some point to quantify it as too big to fail in a sense that you talk about uh, after the TIF expires, that $70,000 of value goes away. Uh, if Easton ceased to be, as a lot of malls are ceasing to be, uh, after 30 years of tax abatement, uh, what would that do to a local economy? That would be a lot more than the loss of $70,000 per household, I would imagine. Well, uh, it, it's something like that. Uh, uh, basically, if they, if this loss of the tax abatement was so important to the area, uh, then we'd probably see not a loss of businesses in Franklin County. Although people still have the same money, they're still spending it. Right. It would just rearrange to other parts of the county. Right. So that would be the first order effect. Uh, the second order effect is, is you know, if I was a developer of Easton, of course I would ask. Yes. You know, yes. Of course I would ask. It's, oh, there's nothing, it's nothing wrong. There's nothing wrong uh, uh, morally with the developer asking for this. What is what's problematic is is when the politician doesn't learn from 30 years. He doesn't learn. <laughs> and also, like as one of our reports pointed out, if you look at the city of Columbus, about 55 percent of donations in the not this election, but the one before is coming from people associated with the real estate community, mm -hmm. and hence, uh, you, know, pol you know, politicians feel they have to cater to their donors. Yeah. Well, and, and I want to kind of go back to something you mentioned a minute ago, Mark, which was um, one of the really kind of nuanced findings of, across these reports is that the benefit capitalizes. So the value of 15 years of lower property taxes gets bundled up, and it happens at the sale. And so what you really have is the person who cashes out the value of that abatement is the person who first sells an abated property. Right. And in because a lot they can charge for the next 15 years of worth decreased. of the decreased and a buyer, especially if they're a young home buyer, you know, a little anecdotal, but you know, you can imagine they put that cost into their mortgage and you know, it's a, you know, spreads out over the mortgage and they're not really doing this math on the back of the envelope with interest rates and inflation and all this calculation to figure it out. But the person who sells gets that bundled value at the point of sale. And if you think about large portions of the city of Columbus and of the County, the real estate developers are selling a lot of houses. <laughs> yeah. And so you think about who stands to potentially benefit from the TIF policy as it's currently instituted. One of the things we test for, uh, you know, we don't go into a report trying to find a, a predetermined conclusion, but one of the things we do find when we examine the data and look at who is buying and selling is we find that there's a pretty large premium for a couple groups. One of those groups is folks who are institutional, what we call institutional buyers and sellers, meaning they're not, you know, a, a person buying their first home as a you know single family homeowner homeowner they're someone who is a trust an LLC a, a development company and the other thing we test is we test the effect of of whether folks who flip homes meaning that they buy it and they pretty quickly sell it again and we test a couple different timelines to figure out you know whether they sell it again in Big a year or two in years value the analysis on that okay right and so what we really look at is is with the way that the tax abatement policy is is written and used, do real estate developers and people who flip homes, they know the market pretty well. 
do they capitalize and have a kind of a, an extra advantage in the market when these things are involved? And I think what we conclude is they do. They yeah. they they tend yep. to have uh, to be able to buy a little bit lower, and they tend to be able to sell a little bit higher. And uh, like I said, folks who wander around with a, a realtor looking in German Village in Columbus or in, in up and coming neighborhoods in Hilliard probably uh, have seen homes marketed as you know a hundred percent tax abated for the next you know X number of years. And over time, just like those relationships with politicians politicians create these loops of uh, reciprocity, the same things with buyers and sellers in these markets. They create uh, ways to function well within these structures uh, that don't contribute overall to the communities that they're supposed to be serving, I think we've pretty conclusively said. Um, in that vein, why not try uh, one more time to redeem this foolish instrument? What if um, tax increment financing could be inverted to serve smaller, individuated situations, parcels. It would be a lot more bookkeeping, a lot more things to keep track of. But I could see uh, a lot of benefit being offered to people for smaller improvements or in the stage of trying to provide density, backyard living, ADUs, things of that nature where you can create use cases for extending water services off of existing pipelines, really building infrastructure within uh, neighborhoods and things like that. Is there any potential for creating these kind of mechanisms? Is there something? Well, I, I think you're raising a good point. Uh, uh, certainly our, the findings that we have uh, in our report would draw caution to even just mild, you know, trying to tinker with them in, in that we find that Franklin County, a mas massive user of these instruments across the state, uh, has fallen in per capita income since these things began. Job growth. Job growth has been no different than what it was before or after. Hmm. Uh, I mean, they're, they're, despite all of this buzz and hype about them, we're, we're not necessarily doing that. We're not we're doing the better. We're doing about the same or maybe even slightly falling. So to get at your question, I'm economists are, are skeptical mostly because they don't trust politicians to make decisions in the public's interest. Hmm. And so that, 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 that's where our concern is. But if you're going to reform, you say we have we have to have this tool. Uh, it would be things like require more requirements that you would you know if if you're promising to do this to a neighborhood, we want to see some amenities in this neighborhood. We want to see some affordable housing. We want to see uh, change you know demographics that isn't just favoring say wealthy whites as opposed to minorities. You know you know some sort of you know rules that you know this is what we want, and if you don't provide it, you don't get the tax break. Right. They've talked about there were a lot of there was an era of clawbacks. Clawbacks are the way to get at these things. But that relies on a lot of bookkeeping. That relies on a lot of administration that uh, I think in a lot of ways I've read through uh, the review council documents and they spend a certain amount of time looking at CRAs and they spend a certain amount of time looking at tiffs and then that's that and we're stamping stuff and we're moving through right and if you have clawbacks in place you're not going to be able to make those little side deals because you're not going to have things on the books you, you know you're not going to have your trip wires that are going to uh you know create the opportunity to make use of that clawback oh like from the government side of things they won't be able to find the the reasons to do it uh based on bad bad information or oh we couldn't do it this year we're going to focus on getting them to improve I came across some documents because I've been following uh, Hickory Chase. It was a development over here that was under uh, TIF. It collapsed after the financial crisis in 08, $90 million hole in the ground. Metropolitan Library came in, rescued the property, turned our 
local library into the crown jewel of the CML system. I mean, it's a beautiful building. It's fantastic. It's going to be for decades and decades. But uh, again, it was a taxpayer on Cemetery Road and it moved over to a TIF district. And I mean, it, it is a, a government institution, but at the same time, it's 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 right in that mix of things uh, that was just fine where it was and, and serving a community purpose where it was. But then uh, by virtue of having to rescue one of these complex financial agreements, uh, we changed the nature of the city to accommodate it. So, I, I think one of the things you mentioned that that I I also want to kind of share for for folks who are listening along, saying, well, who? Why isn't anybody tracking these things? Right? Why isn't anybody bookkeeping this as thoroughly as they should be? Why haven't I heard about this before? Hmm. Uh, and and just we learned a lot about the tax incentive review process over these three reports, and the way that that data collection works is it's it's trickle up. So the auditor is charged with publishing an, an, this tax incentive review report, but the municipalities are responsible for reporting that information to the auditor right. and, and collecting so, it, collecting from it from the, the business the and the homeowners. Yeah. And so one of the things you can pretty easily imagine is a 15 or 30 year long agreement. You've got different city council people than the ones who approved the agreement. For sure. And, and you've gotten you know different. So they're sometimes they're saying, ah, what agreement are we talking yeah, about? That Let's Hickory go. Ch- that Hickory yeah. Chase one, as a matter of fact, showed up in state audit reports as having significant deficiencies in their accounting practices and all these things. And and as time goes by, that's the opportunity cost for hiring another set of firefighters, hiring a, a better you know building a better ambulance service or what have you. These things that you don't see until you need them in these county services that have all been democratically decided that this is where these tax revenues are supposed to be going. These small rooms are saying no and undermining the entirety and the stability of the system. And I frankly have to say Walter Isard would be disgusted by that. (laughs) (laughs) Walter would be unamused, right? And and real quick, I'll I'll kind of uh, uh, tease this third, uh, some of the key findings from this third report that's coming, because um, we ask some of these bigger questions about, you know, as Mark mentioned, what happens when these things expire to the communities afterwards. So one of the things, there's a whole section in the report where we explore the demographic changes. So do they actually displace people? So if you're someone who lives in a, in a low-income neighborhood and a developer is now interested in getting a, t- a tax abatement and developing it and reselling it to you know a, a recent college grad who wants to buy a home in German Village, where do you go? And what happens to the neighborhood, the actual people who live in some of these neighborhoods where we're just tax abating property after property after property? Right. And They're, they've owned that house free and clear since the 60s or whatever, and now those taxes just right. keep going up and up. And some and of them are historically up. minority neighborhoods in the city. Some of them have... Um, uh, and cultural heritage in the city in that neighborhood and and community organizations and institutions that have grown up in that neighborhood and so now you have this kind of sociology impact gentrifying effect, uh, gentrifying effect of, of the tax abatements so that's we explore that in a whole section of this this upcoming report this month and yeah, then, so can I just add yeah. in there because one of the things they're sold as is we're helping low-income neighborhoods and are they just really moving? The low-income residents out, right. and potentially further away from downtown and the short north and amenity-filled parts of the county, right? right? The more well-established stuff that's right. already there, the where the value per acre is already well-established, right. and you don't have to subsidize it. Right. So we explore that with the data and and look at what the the outcomes are there. And the second thing that we look at that I think is is really um, to some of the points you've made is we look at. Uh, the, the propensity or likelihood that a, a tenant of a building that has a tax abatement sells that property 
as the tax abatement expires. Right. And mm-hmm. one of the interesting findings, I think, is, is particularly for commercial and industrial CRAs, one of the versions of, of tax abatement we do, we find that in the calendar year that that abatement expires, those properties are more likely to show up as for sale. Listed. And you think about, that's, you know, folks who do bookkeeping for corporations are very aware of when the tax abatements oh, expire. Sure. Mm-hmm. And they want to do it early enough that maybe that city will say, hey, 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 you don't need to list this building. We'll go ahead and in one of these quiet city council meetings pass a uh, continuance of this tax abatement so you can just stay right where you are. Um, interestingly, BMW Financial has shifted around this central Ohio region pretty significantly, lured to Hilliard with abatement, uh, moved away from Hilliard to abatement but within the last five to ten years. So you can see all that stuff kind of play out in the small scales too. So uh, what happens to that plaza, that complex, those uh, previously uh, counted on after an abatement was supposed to end the the county services and the city being made whole. Instead, now we have an empty building with depreciating value uh, 15 years into its uh, round of renovations, et cetera, et cetera, as we've all described. So again, uh, that colander uh, analogy keeps coming back to my mind and, and seeing good money go in uh, and, and, and limited time returns at best come out. Uh, yeah, I, I, I couldn't be happier with how this little interview played out. I gotta say, uh, it's been a long process for me kind of get coming to a lot of this understanding and I hope to, we can continue, uh, developing it here in the community because that's really the only way you do this stuff is that you can't count on single individuals or small rooms of people to lead these kind of changes in policy because, they're not the ones that are negatively impacted and they can be sold on the positive effects very easily. Right. Or uh, alternatively, if I may, uh, sure, sure. They're, they're negatively affected, but they don't know. Mm-hmm. You know so, and I, I mean, I've, I've had people that are elected smile like, wow, we really pulled off a big one with this. And I got to say you did. Uh, but you didn't pull it off for who you thought you were winning for. You pulled it off for that developer and that property owner and that and that uh, and that company, that corporation, because that's what they came here to get, and they got it. Uh, so yeah, I think that uh, that's my understanding of it. And I just want to say again, thank you, gentlemen, for coming out today. Uh, this has been a really great talk and very educational. And I think that uh, hopefully we can have you back in the future, either in person or we're working on upgrading our video setup maybe we can have you in over distance look at some of these individual cases as they've happened in the county maybe that would even provide you with some more information that might be useful to your work sure. going forward yes we could talk about say intel there yeah. you go oh, we'd, be, sure. we'd be happy to That's come back and, be and chat Boy, and we'll just do one focused on one project but that and you know that's the kind of thing that can make things more concrete for people too so again thank you so much i'm I'm vibrating with a, a joy over this conversation and, and it's been a long time gestating and I'm, I'm just happy to see it come to fruition. So thank you again. Really appreciate it. Uh, for those folks out there, if you'd like to continue supporting our work and supporting Kevin Corvo's 25 uh, year local reporting mission here on Hilliard to keep the people informed and to help positive change come about, uh, you can do that by subscribing at the Hilliard Beacon Substack and uh, you can follow us there and various social media platforms. Until next time, thank you very much and good day. Thank you.